For the reading of God's word, if you're willing and able, please stand. We'll read Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day... The mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Morning. What makes you mourn? Children, I see a number of kids here tonight. What makes you really, really sad? Tornadoes, mass shootings, the recent death of a beloved church member from cancer. There is so much that we mourn in our world today. So much. And this passage in Zechariah is about mourning, but the mourning described in these verses is truly one of a kind. These verses describe mourning for him. For him. We read, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. The Apostle John tells us that this scripture was fulfilled in the death of Christ. John writes, These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. They will look on him whom they have pierced. On this Good Friday, as we meditate once again on the death of Christ for us, these verses from Zechariah call us, they call you to mourn. They call us to mourn. Mourn for the one whom you have pierced. If we would go back and look at the context, if we go back and look at the preceding verses, we would find we would find a battlefield. It would be like surveying a battlefield. The nations surround God's people, but God, he destroys the nations. He destroys them. That's the immediate context. So after such a great salvation, what would you expect? What would you expect? Maybe a victory parade? Singing? Dancing? Block parties? God just, God just defeated the enemies of his people. What would you expect? <clears throat> Instead, 
What do we hear? We hear mourning. Mourning. It's like we've stumbled upon a citywide funeral. We drove into a city and we didn't realize it, but everyone is mourning. God's people are weeping. Why? Because they have pierced their God. They have pierced their God. What causes this overwhelming grief to suddenly sweep over God's people? What's the trigger? Why does this happen? Look with me at verse 10. This passage begins by saying, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Do you see? And I, the Lord, Yahweh himself, this morning is the work of God. It's the work of God. He is the one who initiates all that follows in these verses. You could put it this way. If not for God, if not for God taking the initiative, his people wouldn't mourn. Yahweh will pour out his spirit. Well, actually it says a spirit. But in this context, spirit is not impersonal, but God's very presence. His spirit. The spirit. Capital S, spirit of God. And who is the spirit? He's not the spirit of condemnation. Although that's just what his people deserve. He's not the spirit of condemnation, or the spirit of wrath, or of judgment. No, he's the spirit of grace. He's the spirit of God's undeserved, unrestrained, free favor for sinners. The spirit of grace is not only that, the spirit is also the spirit of pleas for mercy. Think of what this verse is saying. When God pours out his spirit, what happened next? What happens next? His people respond by pleading for favor. Favor comes down from God, and his people respond by pleading for favor. When the spirit of grace falls down, the people of God look up and they pray. It's like when you suddenly feel the warmth of a, of a spring day. You feel the warmth of the sun. We're, we're in spring. We're coming out of the, the winter months. And it's like walking outside and feeling the warmth of your sun and noticing it, turning toward it, and just basking in the warmth. Oh, there's the sun shining. And you enjoy its warmth on your face. It's like when someone shows you kindness. Kindness that you didn't deserve in the least. And you respond with a, melt, with a melted heart. It melts your heart and you cry out, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. This is what your God graciously initiates in your life. He pours out upon you his spirit of grace. You feel the warmth of his favor. His grace melts your heart, and you respond, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. You respond with pleas for mercy. 
As God pours out upon you his spirit of grace, please for mercy begin to pour out of your lips. That's what these that the, that's what this verse is describing. Repentance, in other words, is the work of the Spirit of God. It's the work of the Spirit of God. You can't mourn, I can't mourn, we can't repent unless the Spirit changes our hearts. Repentance is worked in your heart by the Spirit of grace and the Spirit of pleas for mercy. Do you want to repent? Do you want to forsake your sin and live for God? Do you want radical change in your thoughts, in your lifestyle, in your affections, in everything about you so that you walk in newness of life? Pray that God would pour out His Spirit upon you. Pray that God would pour out His Spirit upon you. If not for the Spirit, you can't repent. And Jesus assures us, he says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more? If you ask, how much more will he give the Spirit to you when you ask? Ask him. Pray for the pouring out of his Spirit. Think not only about yourself, but think of others. Do you long for the repentance of unbelievers in your life? Do you long for the salvation of the lost? The sobering truth is that when Jesus returns in glory, unbelievers will look on Jesus and mourn. They will mourn. Because they didn't mourn for Jesus in this life, they will mourn forever in hell. You either mourn now, or you mourn when it's too late. This is why the Apostle John writes, in the book of Revelation, and we read this earlier. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. All of us mourn, either now or when it's too late. So do you long for the salvation of the lost? Family members, neighbors, co-workers, Friends who don't know Jesus? Do you long for their salvation? Take this verse and pray it. Pray that God would pour out his spirit upon them. His spirit of grace. That they would respond to him with pleas for mercy. Take this verse and pray it. Pray. Why will God pour out his spirit? Why will he do this? It's so clear. So that when they look on me, on the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. That's why God pours out his spirit. So that his people mourn. So that they mourn what they have done. And what have they done? What have they done? Do you see it? They have pierced their God. The word for piercing here is used elsewhere in the Old Testament for fatal killings. Fatal killings. So to pierce is not to scratch. It's not to scratch. It's to kill. They have 
pierced their God. But in what sense can God be killed? In what sense can God be killed? Is this metaphorical language? Is the idea that God's people have mistreated him so badly that it's as though they've said, God, you're dead to us. You are absolutely dead to us. We want nothing to do with you. Is that what this is saying? Or is it more than metaphorical? What does this mean? How can God be fatally killed? Remember to keep genre in mind when you interpret scripture. This is a quick aside. Remember to keep genre, the genre in mind. What kind of literature is this? Well, elsewhere in our church, we're, we're going through the book of Romans. That's an epistle, a letter. So is First Peter. We're also studying the Song of Songs. That's poetry, wisdom literature. When we come to this passage, Zechariah 12, it's an early form of apocalyptic literature. So think Revelation, which our ladies are studying through. A lot could be said about interpreting apocalyptic literature. But let this suffice for now. Apocalyptic literature is more like looking at an impressionistic painting than a photograph. When you read apocalyptic literature, when you read this passage, it's more like looking at an impressionistic painting by Monet or an impressionistic drawing by one of your kids. <laughs> it's more like that than a photograph. We can look at the details, your, uh, or a picture that you took on your phone. So that's what apocalyptic literature is like. You get the point is to get the impression. So verse ten speaks about the piercing of Yahweh. What impression are you to get from this verse? It's an impression that leaves you speechless. An impression that makes you gasp in horror. What? What have God's people done? No. How could this be? They have pierced their God. That's the impression. The horrific impression of this verse. It's, it's, it's vague. It's shadowy. It's not quite clear. Well, it became shockingly clear on Good Friday as the dead and bloody body of Jesus hung from a cross. How can God be pierced? Look on Jesus on the cross of Calvary. That's how God can be pierced. Look at Jesus, truly God and truly man, as he hangs there dead from a cross. Why? Why was Jesus pierced? Why was he nailed to that tree? He was pierced for your transgressions, for yours and mine. Your sins drove those nails into his hands and into his feet. He died for you, for me, for our sins. Look on Jesus, the God-man whom you have pierced. What happens when God pours out his spirit, his spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, and his people look on Jesus? What happens? 
What happens when they look on Jesus as he hangs, dying, and dead on a tree? They mourn. They mourn. They weep bitterly. As a Christian, you can attest to this work of the Spirit in your life. You can attest to this. This is true. At the cross of Calvary, by faith, you see your Savior. You see the price he paid for your sin. God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know, I nailed this Savior, my Savior, to that truth. And you mourn. The Spirit works godly grief in your heart. This is, this is personal. It's relational. This is not transactional. It's, as you look at the cross of Calvary, you see your Savior. Jesus died for me. My sin is what nailed him to that tree. Look on him, your Savior, whom you have pierced. What does this morning look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? As we see in the next verses, when God pours out his spirit, repentance goes really deep. And it goes really, really wide. First, it's like mourning the death of a child. Let's pick up halfway through verse 10. They shall mourn for him. How? As one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Losing a child. Our mourning for the crucified Christ is to be like that kind of grief. That kind of grief. We mourn the death of the only and the firstborn Son of God. The passage not only talks about grief in the in the home in the family. It moves from the public to the nation. Look with me at verse 11. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it could mean two things. Maybe more. I'll share two, two interpretations with you briefly. First, this could refer to the death of King Josiah. Do you remember King Josiah? He was killed in battle near Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. He was killed near this spot. And after his death, Scripture tells us that all Judah and all Jerusalem mourned for him. In our day, this would be like 
the national response to the assassination of a president like John F. Kennedy. The whole nation was responding. Could mean that. Another interpretation is that this refers to the mourning rituals associated with the worship of Baal. Think about the battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. That was near this place, the plain of Megiddo. And when Baal didn't respond, go figure, he didn't respond. But when he didn't respond, what did the prophets of Baal do? They just became more and more desperate. They mourned. They started to cut themselves until their blood gushed out. So if that's the case here, then then here's the sense. People of God, as a nation, you are all too familiar with mourning for your idols. Now worship for the true God the true God whom you have rejected. The morning goes deep. It's public. It's like all of the flags across the nation are at half-mast. Everyone is mourning. And in the privacy of home, it's like mourning for a lost child. That's what this morning is like. It goes deep, and it goes wide. So wide. Who's mourning? Who's participating in this? We find the answer in verses 12 through 14. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by, the, by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Who mourns? Everyone. Everyone. No exceptions. The royal family is mourning, the house of David. The priestly family is mourning, the house of Levi. The more important families, um, the house of David and Levi, the less important families, the, the family or house of Nathan and the Shimeites, the men mourn, the women mourn. And the repeated refrain here is that each family mourns by itself, by itself. Perhaps the idea here is that the grief is so intense, it's so intense that each family withdraws from public and mourns in private. Each family is going off and mourning by themselves. We can't even do this in public. Do you mourn like this? Do you mourn like this? Mourning for the pierced Messiah, the pierced Son of God. If we're honest, I'm honest, if you are honest, we struggle to mourn. We struggle to mourn. Sometimes, in self-righteousness, we take our sins too lightly. It's not that bad. Other times, in self-despair, we take our sins too heavily. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I'm so bad take our sins too lightly. 
we can take them too heavily. Well, in either case, whether we take them too lightly or too heavily, what are we doing? We're taking our eyes off of Christ and fixing them on ourselves or others. And when we do that, we can't truly judge the heinousness of our sin. How can I know how bad my sin is if I'm looking at myself or others? It's at the cross where we see our sin rightly. It's also at the cross where we see our sin forgiven. We can't take our sin too heavily when we're looking at Christ on the cross. He died for us. In other words, it's only at the cross where we can see both the cost and the cleansing for our sin. So, like me, do you struggle to mourn? Do you struggle to grieve? Do you struggle to repent of your sin? The answer is not to look within yourself. The answer is to look up and to look out. Look on Jesus, who died for you on Calvary. Think about how Jesus mourned in your place. Look on Jesus, the man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief. He bitterly wept for you and for your sin. As a sinless Savior, his perfect mourning is credited to you. It's credited to you as righteousness. He mourned perfectly in your place. That means that your hope tonight is not in your ability to perfectly mourn or perfectly confess your sins or perfectly repent. Your hope is in Jesus, whose righteous mourning is credited to you. Now, through faith in Jesus, your mourning, however imperfect, your repentance, however imperfect, is, through faith in Jesus, acceptable and pleasing and loved by your Heavenly Father. We've been studying the book of Romans. We can say it this way. As you mourn, you mourn as one who is in Christ. You are in Him. In Him. And His righteous mourning is credited to you. You also mourn as one who is forgiven. When you look on your crucified Savior, you not only see the full measure of your sin, you also see your sin washed away. Because His blood flowed you are forgiven. Because he was pierced, the Father's wrath forever is propitiated. It's turned away from you, once and for all. Because he made full and free atonement for you, in his death, you have life. You crucified your Savior, yes, but God raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and Jesus... What did he do from heaven? He poured out his spirit. He poured out his spirit at Pentecost. And he continues to do it today. The spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that you might mourn. Mourn by faith in him. Not in despair. Not in despair. Not flippantly. But in hope. Like every Sunday... This coming Sunday, Easter Sunday, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. Prepare for the Lord's Supper by reflecting on these truths. 
prepare for the Lord's Supper this Sunday by reflecting on these truths. Pray for God to pour out His Spirit upon you, His Spirit of grace, so that you would plead for mercy, so that you would see your sin rightly, that you would grieve and mourn in hope. What sins do you take too lightly? What sins do you take too heavily? Plead for mercy. Plead for mercy as you look forward to participating in the Lord's Supper this Sunday. Plead for God's mercy and praise Him that He has poured out upon you His Spirit of grace. This passage tells us that each family mourned by itself. What might it look like what might it look like for your family to mourn together? Each family is a little different. So how this would look, it would look differently in each context. It could simply be a time of prayer when you confess your sins together. But the point here is that these verses not only invite us and call us to, to mourn individually, but to mourn as families, to mourn with others. Whether it's someone in your home, or someone else. It's what we're doing here tonight. As we gather on Good Friday, what are we doing? As a church family, we are gathering together to mourn. So what might that look like for your family to withdraw, go off by yourself, and mourn? With eyes of faith, with eyes of faith, May you look on Jesus and mourn, knowing that the day is coming when you will see him with your own eyes and rejoice forever in his presence. Amen. Amen.